0: You know, and that brings up another key point: is the words that are on your website for any company should not be yours. Do not use your own words on your website. Use your client's words or your prospects' words.
1: I was telling Brett that you're, I I, I would say it's a like pop punk band, but what what was the name of the band again?
0: Tickle Trunk. Yeah. yeah. Are you still doing that? Yeah, it's, uh, it's nice. You know, as a founder, there's tons of stress and a whole bunch of other stuff that comes along with the job Uh, and being in the moment and the present can be a, a really impactful thing to do and playing music is one of those activities where you have to be in the moment you have to be playing on time with everybody that you're with at the t- at the it, it, kind of in sync and you can't there's no opportunity for your mind to wander to uh, anxiety inducing cliffs of money running out or how do i pay my employees or how do i land these clients <laughs> so it's nice uh to get that relief yeah you also can't plan it it's just you're just flowing with it right? Flow is the key word.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Five seconds from now doesn't matter. It's just right now. Yeah, that's all we have. So on that note, everybody, welcome to Founder Vision. I am Brett Kistler. I'm here with Brian Gupton and our guest today, who is Ryan Queering. He's the CEO of Safety Tech. How are you doing today, Ryan?
0: Just wonderful. Thank you for having me.
2: So my, my understanding is that Safety Tech is involved in Processes for worker safety, and we were just talking in uh, in our intro about jazz and being kind of being in the flow. And how do how do those things relate to each other?
0: Yeah, you know, great question. If you're not in the present moment as a worker on site, uh, you could be devastatingly injured, or as a worst case scenario, uh, you, you may not get home at the end of the day, kind of thing. So. With that in mind, you know, workers need to have a way to identify the hazards that exist on site and break down complacency because they work in those environments on a regular basis. And so, uh, you know, so that's why safety has been regulated across many, many different industries. Um, unfortunately, with the way that safety has been implemented in the past on you know archaic processes like paperwork and, and that kind of stuff, it doesn't lend its hands to being um, completed on time. It's, it's actually, it, it's really easy to neglect and to backdate documentation. So that's where we come in and we help safety management with uh, with real-time controls around safety. Hmm. So it's, can, can you describe a little
2: bit more about how how exactly the that system used to work and how you guys are changing it? Yeah. Kind of so a, yet at
0: a particular
2: event in the, in
0: the workday, perhaps. Yeah, so typically, like, so if I was to kind of take uh, John Roofer or a, as an example, shows up on site. And prior to starting work, uh, John's meant to be doing a couple of tasks. One is a hazard identification. So what are all of the different things that could hurt or kill myself or my coworkers on site today, this morning? And then what control mechanisms do we need to put in place prior to starting work to make sure that that doesn't happen? So that's, that's the first practice. Mm-hmm. And then you know, in, in roofing is a different industry than in excavations. So there's little different risks involved. And so there's usually like a fall protection plan that needs to go into play for a roofer. Whereas excavations, you got to do maybe a call before you dig style of uh, make sure you're not going to hit any utility lines. Make sure you're like, what, what does your surroundings look like and what do the control mechanisms look like? And then you have to assign responsibility to that control. So. What would normally happen in a world where safety tech didn't exist uh, is that they'd they'd show up on site and typically safety is viewed as more of a burden uh, or as a stepping stone in order to start working. And so they would just forget about doing the hazard analysis. They would forget about doing the fall protection plan and just start working because that's what they're really good at and they want to get into it really quickly. Um, Unfortunately, that lends its hand to incidents occurring because they're not thinking safety first when they're on site and because it's easy to neglect and there's really no repercussions for backdating documentation. Why would you not (laughs) at this point in time? So with, with that in mind, what we set out to do in in our mission is to, to make these mandatory processes simpler, more, more approachable, more engaged uh, for the worker, where it's really, it's not a huge hurdle for them to, to complete these tasks. And if all they require is a simple nudge, from a a ping from our server to their phone to say, hey, have you done your hazard analysis? You you must have started working, it's 8 a.m. Likelihood of you working without completing this is very high, let's just make sure you you do this really quick. Um, And what we end up finding is because we're engaging these workers in safety practices through more of a technological standpoint, using smartphones, tablets, computers, we actually reduce incidents up to 85% within a workforce because the, the simple reminder that gets kicked over it's not an authority figure that's telling him to do something it's a lot more um approachable because you can always blame mm-hmm. the machine because who no this machine doesn't have feelings right there's no emotion in those decisions and so they're yeah. able to to actually complete the tasks that they're supposed to be doing
2: Yeah, it's very interesting. That I I have a lot of experience in in safety myself, and there's like there's several different ways to experience it as a worker. Uh, I I used to work on cell phone towers. I used to build them and uh, change out antennas a very long time ago. And my experience of it then was, you know, that we have OSHA and there's these rules. You have to wear, you know, you can't wear a sleeveless shirt. You have to have your hard hat on all the time. You have to a number of different things. And OSHA would just kind of drive around in trucks and you know, look at you with binoculars and spy and then slap you with massive fines. And the relationship with that was just like, get off of my back. I know how to keep myself safe. This is my body, blah, 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 blah. And then in another world in uh, air sports, like base jumping, for example, parachuting off of cliffs, flying wingsuits, there would still be the same kind of thing, but, uh, it would be, it would, it could only be crowdsourced. It would only be not crowdsourced, I mean, like peer to peer, it would just be your friends or the only people looking out for you when you're out there in the mountains, there would be no authority. And it's it's just interesting how so many, so many accidents could have been prevented by having more, more processes, more gear checks, more checklists. And there was just also a, a very strong resistance to doing that, even though it could impact our lives and our friends
0: lives. Yeah, when you consider, um, like the reason a lot of these goalposts are set up is not to satisfy or satiate the government. The government really has, nobody wins when you get injured, right? Like there's no winner ever. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it's kind of similar, you know, akin to a police officer pulling you over for speeding. You were speeding. They caught you speeding. Now you're going to have to pay a ticket, right? Um, But that experience is always negative. There's, that is, there's never a time when you're like, oh, thanks officer for looking out for me. It's never approached in that manner ever. Mm-hmm. And that's how safety is. Whereas when it's a peer to peer, you know, they have your best interests in mind. And that's the way they approach it is, is, uh, with your buy-in because they're like, Hey, did you, you have a, a parachute, you're about to jump off a cliff. What if one of these strings isn't attached correctly? Or what if like you, you, you've folded your parachute incorrectly and when you do happen to jump you know you fall to your death that that's the same attitude that we're trying to mold into safety Mm -hmm. is look i'm the safety person the safety you can you know i don't like the title safety officer but i'm the safety person on this site it's such a weighted title (laughs) it it infers authority right and so i think that's you know one of the wrong the more the wrong ways that we can approach it but they're not there to tell you how to do your job or how to do safety correctly, although you, you get that there's a spectrum. Some people do; most people shouldn't. Um, we're just there to try to coach and and make sure that you are effective in the way that you're able to to perform your job. It's um, it's it's actually I like that you brought up that that parallel because it's one of the same high risk, high consequence. Reduce your risk. How do you do that? But one is rallied against, and the other is well accepted. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's because of the historic uh, the, the historical uh, approach to how we have performed safety in the past
1: was mm-hmm. not Ryan. I know you've you've got a lot of uh, experience in this particular industry. Was that the unique insight that you had that led you to found Safety Tech and? Um, Secondarily, you know, after you've had that insight, how did you go from idea to your initial launch?
0: Yeah, so that, that wasn't the idea that we had um, when, when founding Safety Tech. It was more about how do we simplify these processes? So I'm an uh, electronic systems engineer by trade. I got into control systems engineering and oil and gas industry, and then I stumbled into functional safety engineering from there. And what I really loved about it and what I really like is it always costs way less to prevent something than it does to mitigate the consequence. So in oil and gas, industry, in that industry, it was always less cost involved in putting a system in place to make sure that a, a vessel won't rupture as it would be to say this pressure's, the, the pressure's rising in this vessel already. Uh, now we gotta try to do something about it after it's already ready to explode. Like so that, you know, the, the difference in, in approaching problem solving one is, well, we got to put a barrier wall or something to protect the human elements on site, or, you know, we could shut down would be the other option. <laughs> and so, it w- which is way easier to do. And you can just start back up again, and away you go. Um, so with that in mind, what we needed to do was arm safety managers with data, because with paperwork processes, you just don't have any information on the what the, the boots on the ground. What are they doing? How are mm-hmm. they doing it? And so that was. The concept was, okay, let's figure out what these safety managers need so that they can have a Monday morning where they can drink their coffee and be satisfied knowing that people have completed what they needed to complete. And they don't have to kind of go into that firefighting mode or that whack-a-mole style of bouncing around trying to solve all the problems all at the same time and not knowing what your week's going to look like uh, to more, you know, actively planning and managing what you're going to be doing. So with that in mind, uh, we started to roll out Safety Tech throughout workforces, and after only after discussing uh, with one of our our early adopters what the actual overall impact happened to be, did we start to discover more of the behavioral change behind safety that we were influencing.
1: So had you inadvertently built that behavior change into the software that you had built, and then you realized that oh that's the secret sauce here. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so it was really cool. And there's a, an accountability that started to, to get distilled. If you were to like take all of the behavioral mechanics that we were impacting, it all boiled down to accountability because we had a real-time uh, tracker on the, the safety forms. So if you didn't do it at 8 a.m., we knew, everyone knew. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's, it's hilarious when um, when you're kept in check by your peers, all of a sudden now you start to perform better. When you're when you when you're being surveilled in a way uh, you start to, to not do things that you would normally do like you start to break those uh, those barriers down or those uh, that complacency
2: yeah it's it's interesting bringing this back to back to the music metaphor the the experience of showing up to a job site having a, a checklist you're supposed to do but you yeah, you might you might just be able to fill it in later you can procrastinate on it you can go straight into the job site. Uh, that system is sort of like proactively planned to prevent accidents, but then when an accident happens, it's really just used for retroactive investigation, and then the data isn't really that valuable. But what you're doing is being in real time. You actually could be doing some active predictive uh, prevention of noticing that certain things haven't been done by 8:30 in the morning, and by having that accountability in a tighter loop, people just they're, well, I can't, I can't procrastinate filling out this, this, these, this checklist. I need to have done these, done these checks and I'm not going to be able to get around that. So I'm just going to work it into my flow. And I think that that can actually lead to people being in more of, more of a jazz type rhythm in their work when it's just embedded in it in that way. And also if it, if it comes out to help them
0: uh, in certain ways too by predicting when they might have an issue. And even just arming people with the information, because what if you are you are playing music, but you're tuned to drop D or a different tuning set on your guitar, then the rest of the band, they're all gonna call you out on that too, right? And so the same thing can be said about reporting information. If, if you're reporting information with a scope of work that's spent for installations versus demolition or, or uh, demoing, uh, you're gonna be identifying the wrong hazards, right? And so uh, with that flow of data, into a portal, your safety manager or individual can review it all and be like, "Hey, wait! They weren't supposed to be doing this scope of work today. They're doing this one. They need mm-hmm. to go and redo this, and and potentially prevent an incident from occurring from there."
1: So, and and obviously, you know, you're in the the, the, the safety um, uh, industry, but for folks out there who are in completely different industries, it seems like there's some some takeaways. You know here no matter what kind of software that you're you're building uh how, how do um you know how would someone go about like making sure that they're paying attention uh to those you know potential learnings you know if in any other industry
0: so there's um we went through a, an accelerator program out of uh, san francisco called alchemist and uh a fantastic accelerator program run by ravi Bellini. Um, and one of the, the coaches and mentors that we were chatting with in the early days of the of the program, this is back in November 2018, uh, said something that i I still hang on to dearly these days is uh, time with customers is never wasted. And again, we didn't understand the gem that we were delivering from a value perspective until we met with our customers until we sat with our customers and heard how their feeling or how they're using the software or what value they're getting out of it to, in their words, and you don't lead them on, you don't ask leading questions, you just uh, talk. It's just a conversation. And when we understood that we impacted their insurance premiums through reducing incident rates by up to 85%, uh, that was a six-figure number that they were getting rebated on insurance premiums. That in, For anyone who's not familiar with workers' comp or any of these other mechanisms that are in place for, for worker safety to mitigate, of course, the consequence of an incident that have already occurred um, construction firms and utility firms and all these construction or these, these types of companies need to pay a premium for insurance. And then they re, they get reviewed every year. And if they perform better, they get kickback. Uh, I think in, in Canada, it's called a PIR. I'm not sure what it looks, what the, what the name of it is in the States uh, or other countries, but. For a design build firm, which is one of our clients, working at a 2%, 3% margin on their projects, the money they got back was the equivalent of landing a brand new $5 million project that they never had to execute on. Why? Um, so that opened up the, the eyes of, of our clients.
1: So h- how do you then go about finding you know, the potential customers that where that message is going to
0: resonate? So then we, we searched for uh, associations. You know, there's always some sort of group. Like if it's music, there's always like a, an art area or group that you're able to go and access to. If it's, uh, you know, I'm not sure whatever other firms are, are going to be listening, but there's look at your peer groups. So if you are a domain specialist or domain expert, or that's what you're trying to position yourself as, find out where they hang out physically in the world, there's Meetup, there's all of these different, there's LinkedIn, there's all these different platforms that, that people can can start chatting on, um, go find out where they exist, because that's what we ended up doing. We went to the, the Canadian Design Build Association, and we started talking to all the people that were exactly like Dan, where we could speak Dan's message to them in, in his words. Mm-hmm. And that, that really resonated.
1: So you're repackaging the things your clients say because you know it's likely to to, to resonate with other similar processes. Yeah,
0: it's not marketing lingo. It's not stuff that I'm creating or hypothesizing. This is real information, real words that that were spoken about the platform, and more than likely because I've never worked in a design build firm, I don't know the exact language to use, and so. Yeah. You know, and that brings up another key point is the words that are on your website for any company should not be yours. Do not use your own words on your website. Use Hmm. your client's words or your prospect's words. I totally
1: agree. Like there's an exercise that I always do when I when I did product work um, that I call where is the wow? And so what I would always, um, you know, have our, you know, customer interfacing Representatives, whether whether that's sales or support or, or whatever, uh, what I would always have them do is is anytime they were having an interaction with a customer and the customer said, "Wow, I didn't realize you could do that," or "Wow, that's super cool," like I would literally have them write down you know the exact quotes, and then we would take that and and use that as the formation of our our marketing material. Sounds very similar to what. Uh,
0: you're doing. I just
1: gave it a silly name, but
0: <laughs> yeah, no. As soon as you can name something, it makes it real. So it's perfect. Right. <laughs> Absolutely,
2: yeah. I'm I'm curious back to back to the, this data that you've been collecting from your clients and how much money they're saving. How did you get mm-hmm. from? from the idea to the point where you were actually gathering that data, and what were you expecting? Was was there a process that you had to go through to insurance companies for them to recognize you and give discounts, or was it that they are tracking the incident rate at these companies over a long period of time and doing adjustments that were attributed to your software? How did that end up becoming, that data come into existence in the first place?
0: Yeah, so it's it's the latter of those two scenarios where it's uh like firms are required to report incidents, um, and these are typically reported in on the medical side of things. So when something happens and somebody hits up the, the local uh medical center and needs to get stitched up or needs needs to be to take a look at a broken foot or whatever, that gets reported to workers comp immediately. And so there's a, a mandatory requirement from a government facility that you need to now follow up with a, uh, an investigation on what actually happened. Like, tell us why this person is sitting in this chair in, in a medical center. And so that's how that ends up getting reported. And so all we did was help collect that information, the witness statements that go into an incident investigation um, and, under, and understand kind of the events that led up to it. And then <laughs> usually when that ends up happening, it, there's some sort of gap in. what occurred in that we didn't do a PPE inspection that morning, or we didn't do a proper hazard analysis, or we had this random subcontractor on site that didn't sign off on the hazard analysis that morning. And so there's always some sort of corrective action that falls out of that investigation. And so then we track the corrective actions. So we close the loop on that post incident uh, scenario very quickly, and then provide all the documentation to workers' compensation through the platform itself. So we make that easier to manage. But more so what we found was we were just enabling companies to implement safety easier. Like most safety people are overworked. It's the same old song and dance, right? They have way too much stuff on their plate because there's not enough funding in the safety group to to do everything that you're wanting to do. You don't have the tools in place. You're trying to perform tasks that are increasingly growing in complexity, but you don't have any more resources to do them. Um, and so you just end up, again, that, that firefighting culture, that whack-a-mole culture where you're just responding all day, every day in a reactive state of mind, as opposed to being able to proactively implement initiatives for safety. So when you look at it from like a, a spectrum of administration work to knowledge worker, a safety person is a knowledge worker that should be spending the majority of their time in the knowledge work value uh, portion of of their day, but when you look at their actual job tasks, they're spending 75 to 80% of their time just in administration, collecting paper, phoning people for paper, trying to get paper into a file cabinet, auditing, being prepared for uh, an auditor with paper. All of these things just take up so much of their time that they can't actually contribute to the safety culture of an organization. They're they're Mm -hmm. paralyzed. And so all we do is we open it up. That's it.
2: Yeah, that brings up another another aspect of another kind of safety, really, on the job, which is if, you are, if you're showing up to a job site and there's a safety checklist you're supposed to be doing, but there starts to de- develop a culture of, well, we really need to just prioritize getting the things done and not getting these safety things checked off. Then when something does happen, it always invariably comes down to whose head is going to roll. And that's going to be somebody who it might not have been the culture that they set but they're they're swimming in this culture of you know we're just going to focus on getting this job done money time whatever and then they end up in the crosshairs when something happens so if you reduce the slippage there then those people end up spending less time on you know after incident paperwork and they also have you know less corrective action taken against them for something that might not really have been a single person's decision, but a, you know, a more of a
0: workplace culture or even an industry culture. Yep. There's a few factors that lead into that. One is uh, psychological safety. So if you go and start working at a, a firm and they tell you their safety first, or they tell you all of these things, but their actions don't line up. With with what they're telling you, uh, you become uh, the antithesis of psychologically safe, where you don't feel safe to say no to something. The mm-hmm. boundary is is not been set. Um, so, in a paperwork environment, or in the environment that's what, what I'd say make up the majority of the industry, uh, you don't have an avenue to report that or to to say no. You don't have you don't have the tools in place to uh to to protect yourself and so with with a platform like what we have you have direct line of access to the safety management uh through the app and so if and i have an example of this one of my buddies that i grew up with uh acquaintance i guess uh moved out to vancouver and was doing excavation work for a company and while he was down in in the pit uh one of the shoring walls there's concrete shoring walls to hold up all the the, the debris, the the soil, the the earth, um, had a crack in it. And so he crawled out and was like, Hey, listen, there's a crack in the concrete and shoring wall. I don't feel safe being down there. And the foreman being kind of that old school cowboyish, get her done attitude said, we got timelines to hit, get back down and, and finish it off. And sure enough, he went back down to go and finish it off. And it wasn't long after that the shoring wall gave way and he, he that was the last day that he lived on earth and so it that's that happens three times a day every single day in construction and you know the circumstances vary but that still happens every single day and i don't feel like that should be happening i don't feel like there is any reason for human life to be lost in construction today um and it's because he didn't have access to go above the foreman. The foreman was the top the mm-hmm. top dog and that foreman didn't have a safety culture attitude. My idea or my hypothesis is if he had access mm-hmm. to an app that he could take a picture of that crack in the concrete, assign a corrective action to the safety manager to say, I'm refusing to do this work because of this. Do something about it. That is not my problem to solve. When that's fixed, I will go and complete my job. Um, had that been available to him, I feel as though he would be alive today because it, it would have, one, given the, the form and direction from a higher up that he didn't have access to at the time. And two, it's that psychological safety of knowing that you are protected if you say no. You're not going to be fired or penalized for refusing unsafe work.
1: Yeah, it's, it, it, it changes the culture over time. It creates yeah. like a you know more safety-fledged yeah. culture. I'm curious, like what, what have you enjoyed... Uh, most and least about starting your own business
0: <laughs> i like the so i'm a creative and i really appreciate uh working on my own schedule working on my own timelines uh you know chatting with people i'm i'm quite extroverted so i enjoy meeting with customers and and talking about their problems and i'm quite passionate about safety uh, or solving any issues really uh, I, I just love problem solving so that's a fantastic this this is an entrepreneur is perfect for me i before becoming an entrepreneur i was uh jumping from job to job to job you know trying to to stay satiated and it just didn't work i got bored really quick you know if you put me in a cubicle that's just <laughs> the worst so um i was i would always be doing some sort of moonlighting activities or some other other way and the driver isn't money that or, or any of that the driver's really you know the challenge, I love the challenge and uh, and that's that's way more fun. Uh, I don't like in you know, a venture capital funded startup. I don't like the looming cliff that's always there. There's a financial cliff, whether it be twenty four months from now or three, uh, it always exists. And that stress and pressure when you have staff of sixteen people uh, is is in, <clears throat> excuse me, is immense. And I would I would not recommend you manage
1: that cliff then when you know it's there. But, you know, you're busy creating.
0: So uh, you wear many hats is what you do. (laughs) So you end up figuring out, well, um, how do you extend that cliff? How do I push that cliff out? And you can do that through multiple ways. You can raise capital. That's one way to push the cliff out. You can sign no more clients to cut your burn or uh, you can let go of people. And that's kind of your only, the, the only levers you can pull uh, in that scenario. So depending on how big that cliff is, um, I mean, the, the the fourth thing that a lot of startups end up doing is just running out of money and going bankrupt. And, you know, that's the, the, I guess the purpose of a, a startup is, is to prove whether something can be turning into a company or not, whether it can stand on its own feet. And uh, so, you know, I don't think any of those scenarios should be, there's no shame involved in any of those. It's just, it is what it is. And uh, but I think that's the that's the, the that stress of uh, of the, the consistently looming cliff is something that uh, has r- really weighs on me, especially in the middle of a pandemic.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So yeah, that, that sounds like your own version of this uh, optimization between you know this, this this looming cliff and then building the company in a long term healthy way even if you only have you know, short-term runway. And that's, that really rhymes with the, the issue we're just, you were describing on a job site that a lot of people are struggling with or challenging with. And that leads to sometimes cutting of corners or a, a culture of unsafety. So how do you bring your, the way that you view accountability uh, and the way that you build this into your product, how do you build this into your company as well and into your culture?
0: Hmm. Yeah, so what you want to have is a is a a culture of staff that are on your team, you know, and they're and identifying, I suppose, what would be known as toxicity. So in in safety, it would be people who uh, actively do not perform safety and they do it on purpose and they almost brag about it, right? Mm-hmm. So in in startup culture, uh, it's the people who are there for the paycheck, and maybe they don't work uh, till 4:30, or maybe they don't, they don't pick up the phone at 7. AM or 7 PM, uh, outside of regular business hours. Um, so it, it's really the, the people you surround yourself with and that's, I, you know, I'm still learning this by staffing and, and human resources and all this stuff that ends up happening. But, uh, you, you find that you'll establish that culture. And when you, when you have it, um, it works really well to your advantage and it will it where everyone notices it your clients notice it your peers notice it your uh if you're in a community of of startups they notice it and so that's i think that i don't want to say hustle attitude but something to that effect i'm not sure what the word is exactly but Mm -hmm. the i find people who are naturally driven to be performing or enjoying their job uh, will be accountable and they'll be and they'll hold themselves accountable that's that's what i think you need in in a startup culture
1: or even just people who are proactive by nature yep right i mean if you in a startup if you hire a bunch of reactive people your company is very likely to
0: fail yep the other reason that startups fail is people <laughs> there's money and people right more likely mm-hmm. you have the wrong people with you
1: yeah there's if you've got the wrong people you're you know there's no amount of money that's going to you know to make you successful there.
0: Yeah. And you're so you're looking for problem solvers is what you're doing is because right. people who are just looking for a paycheck, they can go work a corporate job just fine. And they'll be totally great. And they'll probably rocket in that industry and in that whatever they're doing. But if, if if you have people searching for paychecks, get rid of them now because uh, or or help coach them into how that doesn't matter. You should be job satisfaction should be higher on their Tier list than uh, the paycheck. So
1: Ryan, for uh, your fellow Canucks out there, uh, you know, and, and other founders who, you know, may have decided to start their companies outside of, you know, the major tech centers like Silicon Valley. Uh, what advice do you have for how to approach um, fundraising and, and getting yourself on the radar of investors um, early on?
0: So one, go visit Silicon Valley <laughs> first and foremost. Um, that's that's where the investors are. Uh, so that's you will learn so much about what an investor is looking for, uh, and they're usually quite open to uh, to taking meetings with you. I don't think that I heard many no's to meetings when I was in in San Francisco. Um, find a find a network in in San Francisco somehow. There's loads of them and it could be either for your specific uh, product market or it could be just for startups in general you know find and ask for feedback if you approach everything with feedback in mind you will be very successful in landing meetings with everybody so that's the first step you know for for canada we have a vc culture here but it's it's not the same as as the as the ones in San Francisco or even uh, Boston's really picking up now too, and New York, the VCs in in those centers are they they understand. I guess for for me, I'm speaking about pre-seed and seed level VCs, not series rounds. Uh, those are different. So if you're if you're a founder of a firm and you need angel capital, uh, I mean friends, family, and fools is your first bet to go and, <laughs> and capture some cash. Uh, Then there's like the non-dilutive options, if you can get a bank to give you some capital, that'll always work. Usually you got to do a personal guarantee or something around that. But if you're confident in your idea, then absolutely do it. Uh, But if you're looking for somebody who can help you beyond just capital, then you'll want to get a a solid pre-seed or uh, seed VC and because they they know how to prove out the markets that you're looking to to penetrate. They may not know the market specifically, but they know how to prove it out. so that's that would be the first step. Second step is understand the sales pitch is different than the investor pitch and this was something that that I it took me a little bit to to get my head around is that well one the investor never understands who you're they're not your buyer. So they're not the you do not give them a sales presentation. <laughs> you need to pitch them the investment opportunity. And I think that is one of the the light bulb moments that went off for me is I'm not selling the company. I'm not selling the solution. I'm selling them the investment. What's my unfair advantage? What's the opportunity for the investment to go from a million to 10 million or even a hundred X?
1: Right, well, and the thing that, I, that I've that i always found that, that investors actually wanna hear that is almost never part of an entrepreneur's presentation is what you're gonna actually do with their money. Like <laughs> if I invest X amount of money, you know, these, this is why we need the money. You know, this is what we're going to spend it on. This is the anticipated results, whether that's uh, mind share, market share, you know, additional revenue, you know, and, and, and actually game plan for what you're going to do with the money. And I think that's something that most entrepreneurs, you know, leave out is, is that something that you've kind of made a part of, of your pitch?
0: Yeah. So I, I came at it from an angle of, I didn't start a a tech company. I start. I just built a thing back in, uh, in 2014. Um, and I just, was just part-time. So I was still had a full-time job and I just built a thing. And, uh, once it was built and we started to kind of get some early adopters on the platform itself, um, I, I approached it more like, uh, being engineering is my background. I was used to people coming to me with problems that needed to be solved. And solve the problems and deliver it back to them and they'd be happy. Um, This was a bit different because one, I needed to convince people that they had a problem first and then show them that I had the solution as well. And so it it was a little bit different in, in how you go about talking to your customers um, or your prospects. And so I had to learn a whole lot. And in that search for learning about how to do that, I then started to identify as a tech company. And so, but because I didn't, I had already like budgets and spend and various other pieces were well well ingrained in how I approached business in general. I, I approached it just like I would my consulting company that I was working on. So I, I already had that acumen. Um, I've expanded upon it quite significantly, just knowing what the compounding effect of recurring revenue can look like, and how that explosive growth can can be turned on with a switch. Um, So then I started to to find financial models and I plugged myself into CFO networks to find out, well, what would you guys do from a budgeting perspective and how would you spend this money? And that, you know, seed round, pre-seed round, even angel is less important, I would say, like you need to have some sort of plan, but you really there's no model that you can plug in to say, ah, you're going to give me 500,000 and I'm I'm, going to spit out 5 million. And that's really not what they're looking for. They wanna know, will, will you have 24 months or 18 months of runway before you raise the next round? Cause that's all they're interested in is knowing that you're gonna raise the next round and then raise the next round after that and then raise the next round after that until it goes public or gets acquired, right? Uh, that's what an investor is looking for. So don't show them that you're gonna become profitable in 18 months time, cause that's, they don't care. If you show them that, then you've lost their interest. <laughs> what, what do you show them then? You show them your intent, and so before you go and raise capital, you should be some sort of expert in your field, and that's your unfair advantage: is that you uh, you recognize something that no one else does. You have an unfair market penetration. So, uh, for us, we happen to align ourselves with these 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 memberships of construction firms to access their their um, their members directly, and so we had that unfair advantage of. Being first movers in that space, um, you know that might be something that, that that you can kind of hang your hat on as the, the reason why you're going to win and why nobody else has found this problem and solved it and will beat you. That's more important when you're raising capital, and then they'll help you figure out like the steps in which you need to to acquire clients or the what you should be focusing on and or how. But really start dialing in on your unfair advantage and and the money will come. Either through revenue or through like I mean if you start getting traction early on, you'll have people throwing money at you. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> traction so, solves
1: all problems.
0: Uh, absolutely. And it could be traction not just in revenue, but it could be user adoption. Like um, my buddy founded uh Giphy Cat, and he had hundreds of millions of eyeballs on, uh, on his product without making a dime, but they were funded. Yeah, They knew so they'd they were, it somehow. They absolutely, there's always a way to monetize. And so that's, that's in the, now that's their phase of, 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 their company. But, um, but yeah, like traction is, is different depending on, on what you're doing, if you're doing a consumer app, you know, eyeballs are, are king. If you're doing a B2B, you want revenue traction, cause that's, that's how you measure success.
2: So tell me a little bit more about how you, yeah, I guess I, I was just I'm curious about your team composition and sort of how you've been building, building the tech and building the team with building the tech and what your approach is to that.
0: Yeah. So we've gone through quite a, a few iterations where we were, we built a thing and then introduced it to the market. And then we responded to client feedback and we built what the clients were asking us to build. Um, that was the, the first kind of customer-led growth is what I would label that as the first strategy we, we took. Then um, over time, it ended up being that uh, like our customers, while they were requesting really cool things, they weren't really innovative. They were just kind of, yeah. So the, from a long-term pipeline perspective, it wasn't really, uh, the, the tail end would, would trickle off pretty quickly. Uh, so what we ended up doing is then Planning for innovation. Okay, well, how do we, how do we start to predict what our customers are looking to do? And so we formalized a uh, client advisory board, and we started to spout out our ideas to say, "Hey, we want we we want to plan artificial intelligence, or we want to implement uh, some sort of predictive analytics. Uh, and here's what we're proposing. Would you use this? And just starting to get that feedback. And and usually, what ended up happening. Is they would it's a it's a jumping off point for them. So you would show them something and they'd be like, ah, oh, yeah. But if you did this, it'd be even better. Or if it did these three things, it would be even better. And then we started to to populate our our product pipeline with that information, knowing that they would pay for it if we built it and and gave it to them. Um, so that's that was the the first kind of phase of safety tech. And then COVID hit, and we started to to build things that we felt the the market was going to need, so we built the COVID nineteen uh, workforce health analysis dashboard, which was a risk profile of what an outbreak in your workforce would look like, or if you were close to having one within your workforce. So, um, and we built that in, in kind of end of February and launched it early March to uh, a bunch of success, where we had fifteen hundred companies kind of all sign up to it within a few months period oh wow yeah they didn't all use it Lots of people sign up for stuff and then they never actually use it so we had our work cut out for us and following up with all of them but um but yeah so we, that's when we started to go with more of a product-led growth um architecture where they'd come in for COVID and then we start introducing the other feature sets of the system to see what their interest is and and mm-hmm. of course you, you track all their clicks and what they're what they're navigating around and, and doing. Um, so that was that approach. And then we found that it just, that wasn't successful for our, our ideal customer, uh, base. And so then we kind of pivoted to a marketing led sales approach, marketing led, um, client acquisition approach, where it was more around the words the messages that, that they were telling us and and building remarketing campaigns and drip campaigns around, uh, client acquisition, uh, and then feeding the product pipeline that we had built prior into those messages to find out what was, what was going to resonate with our client base. But you know, the, the landscape changed and shifted drastically after COVID, uh, initial, initial lockdowns happened. We found the enterprises were, were, uh, cutting budget. We're not open to spending money, uh, in the early days and then they're a lot more hesitant to spend. There's just too much uncertainty. They're a lot more hesitant to spend any money now or the people had shifted. So there's a huge workforce flow migration that ended up happening with COVID-19 around uh, the people that that were working in companies and moving around just like you would expect. So mm-hmm. all of those ideas kind of we've been pivoting and shifting and trying to find where we're going to find traction now moving forward and uh, what it, what we ended up finding was we had to redefine our ideal customer profile, ultimately, and until <laughs> maybe mid 2022, we'll see where where we can revert back into the enterprise world. But uh, we're we're kind of in the more transactional phase right now. Hmm. Thank you so much, Ryan, for joining us. I've really
2: enjoyed this conversation, and there's a lot for us to learn and apply this in our
0: lives too, and in our business pleasure to chat. I I can always talk about startups and safety any day. (laughs) Thank Thank you, Ryan.